I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Good morning. As we listen to a special gathering of things to share with you on the show, remember that it's our spring fundraiser, and we're looking to you our listeners to raise $10,000 by April 30th. We're also seeking 10 new sustaining monthly donors and 50 new donors who haven't given before. It's also our 50th year on the air. So I'm hoping that you will be especially generous in your show of appreciation for Central Vermont Community Radio by going to wgdr.org and clicking on the donate button. And thank you so much. We're going to begin today with poetry. I think we'll end with poetry as well. July 31st, 1978. My darling McGeorge, you said that things seemed clearer when they were written down. Well, here with a very boring letter in which I will try to put everything down so that you may read and reread at horror at your folly in getting involved with me. Deep breath. To begin with, I love you with a depth and passion that I have felt for no one else in this life. And if it astonishes you, it astonishes me as well. Not, I hasten to say, because you are not worthy of loving. Far from it. It's just that, first of all, I swore I would not get involved with another woman. Secondly, I have never had such a feeling before, and it's almost frightening. Thirdly, I would never have thought it possible that another human being could occupy my waking and sleeping thoughts to the exclusion of almost everything else. Fourthly, I never thought that even if one was in love, one could get so completely besotted with another person so that a minute away from them felt like a thousand years. Fifthly, I never hoped, aspired, dreamed, 
that one could find everything one wanted in one person. I was not such an idiot as to believe this was possible. Yet in you, I found everything I want. You are beautiful, gay, giving, gentle, idiotically and deliciously feminine, sexy, wonderfully intelligent and wonderfully silly as well. I want nothing else in this life than to be with you, to listen and watch you, your beautiful voice, your beauty, to argue with you, to laugh with you, to show you things and share things with you, to explore your magnificent mind, to explore your wonderful body, to help you, protect you, serve you and bash you on the head when I think you're wrong. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it, I consider I'm the only man outside mythology to have found the crock of gold at the rainbow's end. But having said all that, let us consider things in detail. (laughs) Don't let this become public, but, well, (laughs) I have one or two faults. Minor ones, I hasten to say. For example, I am inclined to be overbearing. I do it for the best possible motives. All tyrants say that. But I do tend, without thinking, to tread people underfoot. You must tell me when I'm doing it to you, my sweet, because it can be a very bad thing in a marriage. Right. Second blemish. Uh, This actually is not so much a blemish of character as a blemish of circumstance. Darling, I want you to be you in your own right, and I will do everything I can to help you in this. But you must take into consideration that I'm also me in my own right, and that I have a head start on you. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that you mustn't feel offended if you are sometimes treated simply as my wife. (laughs) Always remember that what you lose on the swings, you gain on the roundabouts. Uh, But but I am an established creature in the world, and so on occasions you will have to live in my shadow, and nothing gives me (laughs) less pleasure than this, but it is a fact of life that has to be faced. Third, and very important and nasty blemish, jealousy. I don't think you know what jealousy is, thank God, in the real sense of the word. I know that you felt jealousy over Lincoln's wife and child, but this is what I call normal jealousy, and this, to my regret, is not what I've got. What I have got is a black monster that can pervert my good sense, my good humor, and any goodness that I have in my makeup. It is really a Jekyll and Hyde situation. My Hyde is stronger than my good sense and defeats me, hard though I try. As I told you, I've always known that this lurks within me, but I could control it and my monster slumbered and nothing happened to awake it. And then I met you. And I felt my monster stir and become half awake when you told me of Lincoln and others you've known. And 
With your letter, my monster came out of its lair, black, irrational, bigoted, stupid, evil, and malevolent. You will never know how terribly corrosive jealousy is. It is a physical pain, as though you'd swallowed acid or red-hot coals. It is the most terrible of feelings. But you can't help it. At least, I can't. God knows I've tried. I don't want any ex-boyfriend sitting in church when I marry you. On our wedding day, I want nothing but happiness, both for you and me. And I know I won't be happy if there is a church full of your (laughs) ex-conquests. When I marry you, I'll have no past, only a future. I don't want to drag my past into our future, and I don't want you to do it either. But remember, I am jealous of you because I love you. You're never jealous of something you don't care about. Okay, enough about jealousy. Now let me tell you something. I have seen a thousand sunsets and sunrises on land where it floods forest and mountains with honey-colored light, at sea where it rises and sets like a blood orange in a multicolored nest of cloud slipping in and out of the vast ocean. I've seen a thousand moons, harvest moons like gold coins, winter moons as white as ice chips, new moons like baby swan's feathers. I've seen seas as smooth as if painted, colored like shot silk or blue as a kingfisher, or transparent as glass or black and crumpled with foam, moving ponderously and murderously. I felt wind straight from the South Pole, bleak and wailing like a lost child, winds as tender and warm as a lover's breath, winds that carried the astringent smell of salt and the death of seaweeds, winds that carried the moist, rich smell of a forest floor, the smell of a million flowers, fierce winds that churned and moved like the sea, like yeast, or winds that made the waters lap at the shore like a kitten. I've known silence. The cold, earthy silence at the bottom of a newly dug well. The implacable, stony silence of a deep cave. The hot, drugged, midday silence, when everything is hypnotized and stilled into silence by the eye of the sun. The silence when great music ends. I've heard summer cicadas cry so that the sound seems stitched into your bones. I've heard tree frogs in an orchestration as complicated as Bach singing in a forest lit by a million emerald fireflies. I've heard the keers calling over the grey glasses that groan to themselves like old people as they inch their way to the sea. I've heard the hoarse street vendor cries of the mating fur seals as they sang to their sleek golden wives. The crisp, staccato admonishment of the rattlesnake, the cobweb squeak of the bat, and the belling roar of the red deer knee-deep in purple heather. I've heard wolves baying at a winter's moon, red howlers making the forest vibrate with their roaring cries. I've heard the squeak, 
purr and grunt of a hundred multicolored reef fishes. I have seen hummingbirds flashing like opals around a tree of scarlet blooms, humming like a top. I've seen flying fish skittering like quicksilver across the blue waves, drawing silver lines on the surface with their tails. I've seen spoonbills flying home to roost like a scarlet banner across the sky. I've seen whales, black as tar, cushioned on a cornflower blue sea, creating a vast sigh of fountain with their breath. I've watched butterflies emerge and sit, trembling while the sun irons their wings smooth. I've watched tigers like flames mating in the long grass. I've been dive-bombed by an angry raven, black and glossy as the devil's hoof. I've lain in water warm as milk, soft as silk, while around me played a host of dolphins. I have met a thousand animals and seen a thousand wonderful things. All this I did without you. This was my loss. All this I want to do with you. This will be my gain. All this I would gladly have forgone for the sake of one minute of your company, for your laugh, your voice, your eyes, hair, lips, body, and above all for your sweet, ever-surprising mind, which is an enchanting quarry in which it is my privilege to delve. Hi. Hi. I was running after you for a long time. I, I, I was watching you for... Actually, I've watched you for a long time. I like to watch you when you're walking back and forth on the beach. And the way your... The way your cloth looks. I like... I like to see the edges, the bottom of it get all wet when you're walking near the water there. real nice to talk to you. I, I didn't... I, I... 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 How are you? I saw... I saw you from your balcony window and, and you were standing there waving to everybody Exactly like you were. You, it's not that you were just waving to me, but that we were we were waving to each other. Really, it was really wonderful. I really felt happy. It really made me happy. And um, I, I just wanted to thank you because.
was nothing. I um. I well, I'm just clumsy. Yeah. No, it's just a bandaid. No, it's okay. Oh no, I'm always dumb. Always, something's always happening to me. I'll be seeing you. Bye. talk today about money and happiness, which are two things that a lot of us spend a lot of our time thinking about, either trying to earn them or trying to increase them. And a lot of us resonate with this phrase, so we see it in religions and self-help books, that money can't buy happiness. And I want to suggest today that in fact that's wrong. And that... <laughs> and in fact, if you think that, you're actually just not spending it right. So that instead of spending it the way you usually spend it, maybe if you spent it differently, that might work a little bit better. And, and before I tell you the ways that you can spend it that will make you happier, let's think about the ways we usually spend it that don't, in fact, make us happier. Money often makes us feel very selfish and we do things only for ourselves. And we said, well, maybe the reason that money doesn't make us happy is that we're always spending it on the wrong things, and in particular that we're always spending it on ourselves. And we thought, I wonder what would happen if we made people spend more of their money on other people. So instead of being antisocial with your money, what if you were a little bit more pro-social with your money? And we thought, let's make people do it and see what happens. So let's have some people do what they usually do and spend money on themselves, and let's make some people give money away and measure their happiness and see if, in fact, they get happier. So the first way that we did this on uh, one uh, Vancouver morning, we went out on the campus at University of British Columbia, and we approached people and said, do you want to be in an experiment? And they said yes. We asked them how happy they were, and then we gave them an envelope. And one of the envelopes had things in it that said, by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on yourself. So when we gave some examples of what you could spend it on. Other people in the morning got a slip of paper that said by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on somebody else. Also inside the envelope was money, and we manipulated how much money we gave them. So some people got this slip of paper and $5. Some people got this slip of paper and $20. 
We let them go about their day. They did whatever they wanted to do. We found out that they did, in fact, spend it in the way that we asked them to. So if you give undergraduates $5, it looks like coffee to them, and they run over to Starbucks and spend it as fast as they can. But some people bought a coffee for themselves the way they usually would, but other people said that they bought a coffee for somebody else. So the very same purchase, just targeted toward yourself or targeted toward somebody else. What did we find when we called them back at the end of the day? People who spent money on other people got happier. People who spent money on themselves, nothing happened. It didn't make them less happy, it just didn't do much for them. And the other thing we saw is that the amount of money doesn't matter that much. So people thought that $20 would be way better than $5. In fact, it doesn't matter how much money you spent, what really matters is that you spent it on somebody else rather than on yourself. We see this again and again when we give people money to spend on other people instead of on themselves. We wanted to see if this holds true everywhere in the world or just among wealthy countries. So we went, in fact, to Uganda and ran a very similar experiment. And what we see is sort of amazing because there's human universals on what you do with your money and then real cultural differences on what you do as well. So, for example, this is a woman from Canada. We say, name a time you spent money on somebody else. She says, I bought a present for my mom. Perfectly nice thing to do. It's good to get gifts for people that you know. Compare that to this woman from Uganda. I was walking and met a longtime friend whose son was sick with malaria. They had no money. They went to a clinic and I gave her this money. It's a very small amount of money, in fact, but enormously different motivations here. This is a real medical need, literally a life-saving donation. Above, it's just kind of, I got, bought a gift for my mother. What we see again, though, is that the specific way that you spend on other people isn't nearly as important as the fact that you spend on other people in order to make yourself happy, which is really quite important. So you don't have to do amazing things with your money to make yourself happy. You can do small, trivial things and yet still get these benefits from doing this. These are only two countries. We also wanted to go even broader and look at every country in the world, if we could, to see what the relationship is between money and happiness. We got data from uh, the Gallup organization, which you know from all the political polls that have been happening lately. They asked people, did you donate money to charity recently? And they asked them, how happy are you with your life in general? And we can see what the relationship is between those two things. Are they positively correlated, giving money makes you happy, or are they negatively correlated? On this map, green will mean they're positively correlated, and red means they're negatively correlated. And you can see the world is crazily green. So in every, almost every country in the world where we have this data, people who give money to charity are happier people than people who don't give money to charity. So almost everywhere we look, we see that giving money away makes you happier than keeping it for yourself. What about your work life, which is where we spend all the rest of our time when we're not with the people we know? We decided to infiltrate some companies and do a very similar thing. So these are sales teams in Belgium. They work in teams. They go out and sell basically to doctors and try to get them to buy drugs. So we, we can look to see how well they sell things as a function of being a member of a team. Some teams, we give people on the team some money for themselves and say, spend it however you want on yourself, just like we did with the undergrads in Canada. But other teams, we say, here's 15 euro. Spend it on one of your teammates this week. Buy them something as a gift or a present and give it to them. And then we can see, now we've got teams that spend on themselves and we've got these pro-social teams who we give money to make the team a little better. The reason I have a ridiculous pinata there is one of the teams pulled their money and bought a pinata and they all got around and smashed the pinata and all the candy fell out and things like that. A very silly, trivial thing to do, but think of the difference on a team that didn't do that at all, that got 15 euro, put it in their pocket, maybe bought themselves a coffee, or teams that had this pro-social experience where they all bonded together to buy something and do a group activity. What we see is that, in fact, the teams that are pro-social sell more stuff 
than the teams that only got money for themselves. And one way to think about it is, for every 15 euro you give people for themselves, they put it in their pocket, they don't do anything different than they did before, you don't get any money from that. You actually lose money because it doesn't motivate them to perform any better. But when you give them 15 euro to spend on their teammates, they do so much better on their teams that you actually get a huge win on investing this kind of money. And so I'll just say, if you think money can't buy happiness, you're not spending it right. The implication is not, you know, you should buy this product instead of that product, and that's the way to make yourself happier. It's in fact that you should stop thinking about which product to buy for yourself and try giving some of it to other people instead. And we luckily have an opportunity for you DonorsChoose.org is, is a nonprofit for uh, mainly uh, public school teachers in low-income schools. They post projects, so they say, I want to teach Huckleberry Finn to my class and we don't have the books, or I want a microscope to teach my students science and we don't have a microscope. You and I can go on and buy it for them. The teacher writes you a thank you note. The kids write you a thank you note. Sometimes they send you pictures of them using the microscope. It's an extraordinary thing. Go to the website and start yourself on the process of thinking, again, less about how can I spend money on myself, and more about if I've got $5 or $15, what can I do to benefit other people? Because ultimately when you do that, you'll find out you'll benefit yourself much more. In our current capitalist culture, it seems so amazing that listeners would actually voluntarily give money to support us here at WGDR, or to anything for that matter. But the evidence is in through numerous studies. You know, those double-blind scientific method type studies, as if real life experience didn't actually count. And you know, that's why the robots are going to win, because we don't even believe in ourselves. We might as well be figments of our own imagination. Hey, wait a minute. I think we are, but I digress. So what were we talking about? Oh yeah, scientific studies and evidence. So if it pleases the court, the studies are in that when people freely give to others or to an organization that they feel good about, it actually makes them feel better about themselves. Imagine that. You know, our capitalist culture is hell-bent what's in it for me and getting everything they can get with no regard for how that might affect anyone or anything else. And what do they get for that? More money, more things, more favor, more power. And to what end? Does it make them happier or feel better about themselves or more connected to the world around them? I think you already know the answer to that. But on the other hand, giving, not giving with the expectation of return, but freely giving to others significantly increases happiness and the sense of well-being in the giver, which ripples out into the world around us, creating a cascade of virtuous cycles of goodwill, generosity, and caring that help balance out the ravaging effects of our modern capitalist what's-in-it-for-me system. We know that money is tight for many of us, so May I suggest a sustaining monthly donation of any amount that feels good to you? Our current sustaining donors give anywhere from $5 a month up to $50 a month or more. When you go to WGDR.org and click on the donate button, you can make a one-time donation or a sustaining donation. And one of our goals is to get 10 new sustaining monthly donors. 
we're also seeking 50 new donors who've never given to WGDR or WGDH before. As we seek to raise $10,000 during this spring fundraiser by April 30th. And you can help us by going to WGDR.org and clicking on the donate button. It's also WGDR's 50th year on the air, and this summer completes two years as Central Vermont Community Radio. So with that in mind, please go to WGDR.org and make a generous donation and consider becoming a sustaining monthly donor. And if you already are a sustaining monthly donor, consider giving an additional $50 donation or any amount that feels appropriate in honor of our 50th year on the air. You can also mail us a check to 123 Pitkin Road, Plainfield, Vermont, 05667. And either way you do it, leave us a comment or suggestion. We love to hear from you. And thank you so much. This is Lynn Murphy and Alnur Lada talking about their recent book, Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in the Time of Collapse. Alnur Lada is an activist, journalist, political strategist, and community organizer. He was the co-founder and executive director of the global activist collective, The Rules. He's currently the council chair for Culture Hacks Labs. He holds a master's degree in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics. Lynn Murphy is a strategic advisor for foundations and NGOs working in the geopolitical South. She was a senior fellow and program officer at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, where she focused on international education and global development. She resigned as a conscientious objector to neo-colonial philanthropy. She holds a master's degree and PhD in international comparative education from Stanford University. Together in this book, they conduct a sweeping and engaging ethnography of archetypal, mythopoetic, and institutional and philosophical territories of capital as a worlding agent and as a carceral dynamic, obscuring transformational possibilities. Greetings to all of you. I'm here in a place called Chiripo in Costa Rica. I'm often with El Nor, but I'm at this place. And just to invoke it means place of eternal water. And so I greet all of you who are on lands that are thirsty. I'm in a land that sometimes has a little bit too much. And maybe that's a way to speak to what was the inspiration for this book. At some point after I kind of resigned from the former work that I had in foundations and went on a whole sojourn to really figure out how to be of service in these times and wed that service with what was coming to me in my spiritual practice. 
I met Elnor some years back, and he was still engaged in the work of the rules at that time. And the rules, of course, is that he can say a lot more about this, but as an organization that was working on changing the rules of capitalism, given the NGO industrial complex, it was not an easy one to get funding to support the very work they were doing. And so there were many people saying to him, you need to do not just like political education of funders, but this work of blending the political and the sacred, like this is needed right now. And I was in my own journey of that. And we came in to know each other and started doing something. One of the work that the rules did was something that we call the transition resource circle. And it's essentially how do we be with funders and funder activists in this moment to look at how we use capital, so to speak, to actually build what's going to come after or come during the collapse and use it in a way that our very consciousness and our gaze and way of approaching is itself part of the prayer and part of the shift. And so as we did that work and spoke to people about this is not just our wealth or any one foundation's wealth or any individual's wealth, but this is the world's collective endowment, we started getting questions about, well, what would post-capitalist philanthropy look like? And we're like, we don't know. <laughs> so it set us on a journey to listen and to talk to many different wisdom holders, indigenous elders, people who are looking at, you know, degrowth economics to those who are understanding what's coming with our consumption of energy and just a host of people all over the world. And we weren't sure what we were going to do with all of that listening and this like really sitting with what this could be. And it became clear to write this and offer this as a book. And Maybe Elmer can speak a little bit more about kind of not just the structure of the book, but what started to come to us to weave together in those lines. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. And maybe we start with the prayer, the dedication that you invoke. That, you know, our entry point into this is seemingly philanthropy, but the book is not really about philanthropy at all in many ways. And we sort of sat with the why, Lynn having been a former philanthropist, in her words, not mine, for many years. and me as an activist who had spent you know 20 years fundraising, I had a lot of disdain for philanthropy and I was avoidant. And yet it just kept on coming that it doesn't matter what issue you're working on, social movements, not-for-profits, all of civil society is funded by philanthropy. It's the upstream. And philanthropy is an odd sector because it's so occluded, very, very little transparency. It's a very obscure field, but yet it's like $2.2 trillion right in a 80 billion dollar gdp so it's massive it's the it's the size of a g8 country it's equivalent to canada's gdp and that's just what's known and so we started to realize how powerful this invisible force is and, and how it perpetuates the logic of neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism and, and by neoliberalism we're just referring to this current incarnation this brand of capitalism and it's it's almost like a, a chapter within late-stage capitalism and that what it's doing is it's both purporting to be the solution to our problems, more money will solve the problems that money has created, without ever acknowledging that it's a symptom that a few people have amassed so much wealth that they're now deciding the agenda of civil society without any public dialogue, without any democratic means or mechanisms. And so it, it really became this entry point into understanding the deity of money and the deity of wealth in these times. And so we, we kind of went on what became an animistic inquiry 
into how did the sort of living entity of money and wealth and philanthropy play themselves out in these times? And what does it tell us about our current context? And then where shall we go from here? And that's kind of the, the nature of the inquiry in the book. So the starting place for the book is this paradox that in some ways all inquiry starts with these paradoxes. And just to acknowledge them and situate the inquiry in that, which is, uh, and I won't get into all of them, I think more importantly, the, the, the thing to say is that we're, we're not pretending to have any final answers. We're not sort of making recommendations as if this is what must happen with money or philanthropy or, or post-capitalism, but acknowledging that, just take one paradox, for example, like the, the paradox of performance that we all play these roles, pretending to be whatever it is, philanthropists, experts, activists, and the very performing of the role limits the expansion of our inquiry. For example, privilege is a constraint, right? Privilege can be a blinding constraint often. And so the very means by which we're gazing a situation depends on how we see ourselves in that situation. And then that limits the field of knowledge. And so part of the work we're trying to do and not just in the book, in, in, in a sort of our broader inquiries is how do we become more contextually sensitive in order for us to be more contextually relevant? So how do we become more sensitive to the multiple layers of reality, the multiple ontologies, and by ontology, we just mean our way of seeing, perceiving reality and our place within it. So how do we become more sensitive to these layers of reality that are happening in order to be more relevant, right? And so if we believe, for example, that the current metacrisis, which means that all of these sub-crises are interlinked and cascading. They're related. They're affecting each other. Climate change is not separate to late-stage capitalism. Climate change is the direct result of our economic system. When you have a growth debt-based system that's based on fossil fuels, everything we do is going to heat up the planet. When you have an economic system where 93 cents ends up in the hands of the one top 1% after the multiplier, by definition, our wealth creation is creating inequality and creating poverty. It's actively doing so. And so unless we have that bigger picture structural understanding, we then replicate these other mistakes. And I often go after Tom's shoes, but it's, it's not a personal thing. It's just a good emblematic example, right, of this idea that, and it's well-intentioned, right, that we're going to sell shoes to certain people and every shoe that's sold, we're going to give away a pair of shoes. And if the frame of reference is that the problem is just people don't have enough, then we end up with these types of solutions, what we refer to as solutionism. And each new solutionist ideal creates a whole host of concomitant effects and consequences in its wake that we then have to clean up the mess of, and so on and so on. And this is the kind of problem-solution mindset of capitalism and the dominant logic that we're, we're all enmeshed in. And so paradox is the appropriate starting place to step back and say, okay, how do we not untangle, but more feel the weaving of? if that makes sense. As we go through the book, Elnor and I offer kind of our subjective view of what some transition pathways might be. And we recognize the paradox of pronouncement or even gesturing to anything in the material phenomenological world being also incongruent with this notion of what we're speaking to of the beyond and into the animate reality. So we recognize the limitations of what we can see and what we're pointing to at the same time as not letting that keep us in some sort of stagnation and not actually in the paradox of what we would call paradox of pronouncement, language or a recognition of form and matter. And the other thing that the huge paradox of the entire book is, of course, the paradox of what we're even naming of 
quote unquote, post-capitalist philanthropy. And we're offering that perhaps while the currency, the dollar, the pound, the euro, whatever it is, while it still has value and we have this temporal time dimension that we don't actually know how long it is, but the Occidental gaze and the Western way of living, can we embrace the paradox that we're all caught in checkmate? We all went to the store to buy goods and services. We're here on Zoom. We're using all sorts of lithium. We're using all sorts of things that the capital system gave to be in this dialogue and conversation. In the same way, can we look at the, the wealth holders and these philanthropic institutions and others and offer that while this has value to actually support transitions into what we would invoke as called post-capitalist realities or systems that are rooted in life-centric reciprocity rather than systems that are rooted in continuation of dominion over that comes back to the Abrahamic traditions and ways of gazing at domination and exploitation and thingifying peoples and lands and resources through that very link. So we're embracing that paradox as well. So by post-capitalism, we're not saying that there's going to be another ism after capitalism. And, and we kind of labor this quite a bit at the beginning of the book. But rather that the way postmodernists talk about modernism, the post is informed by. So part of what we're saying is that whatever comes next has to be informed by and steeped in the understanding of the existing system. That's one of the ways we, we think about post-capitalism. There's a line that we use in the book, and I may get it wrong so you can correct me then, but it's something like, if you don't have a critique of capitalist modernity, you are contextually irrelevant. But if all you have is a critique, you're spiritually and creatively impoverished. So the critique is not the end place. But it's the entry into something else. Like we have to understand the full light and the full shadow of the existing system and its existing structure in order to build something new. And by something new, we're also referring to new ancient emerging. You know, it's not new in a temporal sense. And that these realities already exist and they can simultaneously exist in multiple temporalities. Indigenous cultures that have been resisting the onslaught of capitalism are in their own way living post-capitalist realities. And so, it's really informed by values. And so we look at the existing system and we say, what's the source code of this thing? What is the logic of this thing? And it's quite easy to figure out. You don't need to be an economist or a political philosopher. Right? You just look around this and you're like, okay, it's short-termist, greedy, extractionist, commodifying, life-destroying. So how do we build systems outside of that that are based on generosity, cooperation, altruism, solidarity with all life, interdependence, interbeing? And that's the starting place and not necessarily at a superstructure level. We're not trying to create the new ism. It can be informed by these other isms like eco-socialism and feminism and post-anthropocentrism and post-humanism and these things. But rather it's a values-based approach, how we live and create and die well while acknowledging we live in the midst of the desert of late-stage capitalism. I just can't help but just reflect on the fractal nature of what is so within, so without. And part of what we recognize that, that this is an inner journey and the way that that inner journey is reflected in the outer journey. And there is in some way no separate self. In fact, the very notion of ego, the parallel journey with capitalism, the what comes up in neoliberalism is an identification with the individual, the whole way that we perceive the world, that we are separate. The way that I can look at this table around me and, and with my gaze, I can thingify the glasses and I can almost like try to grasp them 
for whatever my needs are rather than actually being in a in a relationship with what is or see the sets of relationships that even brought these glasses into being. I'm so conditioned through the the capitalist. I mean, there are people that talk about this as being the dominant culture over 500 or thousands of years. And so we don't want to necessarily locate what brought this, you know, be precise. But we know there was very intentional work done a thousand to 500 years to bring us into a sense that we are separate selves and the obsession with the material, the obsession with comfort, I would dare say, is for all of us to reckon with in these times. You know, when I notice that within myself, if I start to feel a level of anxiety or attachment to do I have enough, whether it's do I have enough food or water, it immediately moves me into a scarcity mindset. This is exactly the logic of capitalism and exactly the spiritual path to untangle within ourselves. And I would say within this piece of whether you're looking at foundations or other, but there's a deep thought form around entitlement. We are entitled to an organizational existence. Are we entitled to our bank account? Are we are entitled to our endowment? We are entitled to the way of life that we have seen it. We are entitled to own land. We are entitled to have certainty in these times. And all of this is inextricably linked both to the outer, the superstructure that we're calling neoliberalism or late stage capitalism and the inner, the self-centeredness of the, the spiritual journey. Yeah. And so this inner outer mirroring that's happening, why does it require critique? And there's this line from the Vedas where it says, if you do not know you're in the Kali Yuga, you're of no use to the Kali Yuga. Right? If you don't know you're in the Dark Ages, you're of no use to that period in history in which you incarnated. And so to really understand the, the oxygen which we breathe, which we can describe as neoliberalism or capitalist modernity. I like the frame of capitalist modernity because it's not just the political economic system of capitalism, it's also modernity as the, the kind of cultural epoch that we're in. And, you know, scientists prefer the term the Anthropocene as the sort of current period in time. And so the, in some ways, the starting place is like, what is this culture in which we've been enmeshed? And our spiritual journey is not absent of the context. This is what we've learned from the last 30 years of social science, that we are highly contextual beings. The modern neoliberal trope is that, and, and this comes from enlightenment onwards, is that human beings are highly selfish competitive, hierarchical, and we need these structures in order to survive, right? The base unit of our understanding of how to organize society and culture is, is through the individual. And actually, what we're learning is that human beings are highly contextual, that if we're put in certain positions that we can do almost anything. I think of the Stanley Milgram experiments, you know, where someone in a white lab coat asks someone to shock someone to the point of death. And they've been told, you know, if they pass this point of the knob, you could kill that person. And because an authority figure tells them to do that, they do it most of the time. And so part of the inquiry is, well, how do we structure the world? How do we create political economies that bring out the best aspects of humanity? We were hunter-gatherers for 99% of human history. We were living in small cooperative bands. Most hunter-gatherer societies were matriarchal. Right? When we were hunter-gatherers, for example, 80% of our calories came from gathering. Hunting played a secondary role. And we're not saying, let's go back to the Paleolithic or, or pre-Neolithic times, but how do we synthesize and incorporate the best aspects of pre-modern, modern, postmodern modern, into rethinking the very structures that are 
I'm not going to say preventing, but let's say co-creating our the ability for consciousness to evolve. And this is where non-dualism and a non-dualistic approach and capitalism are so interlinked. The, this sort of new age idea that you can achieve enlightenment as an individual task has sort of stemmed from a neoliberal approach. It's a form of spiritual narcissism that somehow we're going to achieve individual enlightenment when we live in a structure where there's suffering and destruction and species extinction and, and all of this madness that we're all entangled in, that we're all complicit in all around us. And, and that's sort of at the heart of this. So in some ways, even our spiritual understanding, even our conceptions of consciousness, even our conceptions of non-duality are completely informed by the context of capitalist modernity. And how could it be otherwise? Why liberate the capital and instead of hospice it? In some ways, the liberation is the hospicing, you know, and that's a, a kind of foreshadowing of the book. Mm-hmm. And also to say, like, you know, there's this new age trope that money is energy. Right? Money is just energy, right? We've all, we've all heard this. And what we're saying about becoming contextually sensitive is to realize it's also so much more than that. It, it also represents the 500-year head start that Western Europeans received from inventing fiat-based currency. It re- represents the growth that is required, which directly is related to the destruction of the planet. It represents the colonialism and imperialism and genocide and pillage and rape that was required to acquire that capital, right? And so all of this shadow is embedded within this thought form of money. And non-dualistically, it's also right now the only way we have at a globalized level, let's say, to organize labor, right? So I may want someone here in our local community to help me plant trees. They're not going to accept yucca or sweet potato. They may in 10 years or 20 years, you know, post the the collapse of of debt-based currency. But right now, it's a way to organize labor. And so part of our inquiry is, how do we use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure? How do we use capital to build land, water, energy sovereignty, medicine, educational, cultural sovereignty at a localized bioregional level. There's a very short period of time, and you know, who knows what that is. Some people will say five years, some people say 10, some maybe 20 is the upper bound of our kind of modern way of living. That, of course, we cannot have exponential growth on a finite planet, and that's exactly what's required right now. When we hear this idea of World Bank and IMF and others say that global economy has to grow at 3%, We've all heard this, right? We get into stagflation or deflation or recession if we don't. And what that actually means is a doubling of the global economy every 24 years. And it's the first time economists and ecologists agree on this. There will not be another doubling of the global economy. We're reaching material limits on all the key inputs to industrial capitalism, lithium to cobalt, iron, you name it, gold, silver, etc. And so as we're reaching these upper bound limits, we need to start thinking about what infrastructure do we want to build and how do we build local resilient economies and communities before and probably in parallel to cascading collapses. And so capital can play a role in that. And we're all enmeshed in that. At this point in time, capital is mediating every aspect of our lives. Right? There's no aspect of our lives that is not mediated by capital. Where you grew up, what you do for spare time, who your neighbors are, what your parents did for a living, what you're wearing right now, what food you're eating, if you're eating food, all of it is mediated by capital. And so part of what we're saying is that there's spiritual and karmic implications to being a money hoarder at the end of time. And there's spiritual and karmic implications for how we use capital in this transition period. 
And that's sort of what we're gesturing towards without any sense of what the right answer is. But let's be aware of the consequences of our actions. Anything I would just add to that, you know, why liberate, why not hospice? And I was thinking about there's a foundation that we have been entangled with and their decision has been to hospice the foundation itself, meaning over a set period of time, give away the endowment, the grant making everything. And in that way, actually hospice the very notion of philanthropy and and what their role is. And it brings up a whole lot of questions, everything from people's livelihoods to the work that they're supporting in the world. And where are those organizations going to be supported when that foundation that is a really like good one in that sense, like in good relations and giving in a very respectful way and not powering over. And yet what Elnor was speaking to of the post-capitalist infrastructure, there's a deep peace in what we're invoking of the spiritual and the ontological to listen, to take it as not just there is the right way because the energy of righteousness sneaks in there, but there is the way if you really take that this is the world's collective endowment and we are truly in service, not from the energy of martyrdom or the white savior, but we're really in service in a, in a relationally based reciprocal exchange, then there may be those that are listening for hospicing the notion itself. And as Alnor said in the beginning, those ideas are inextricably linked. And I've been reflecting on this, watching where I am in a place where extreme amount of water flows. And I'm aware of what I've seen, one of the mistakes that I've seen in philanthropy being okay, so this is the thing that we need to do. So then all the money rushes in one direction. And it's in the same way that when a flash flood comes in, and it's, again, not done in a relationally based. So every time I listen into what is liberation of wealth, it's coming back into right relationship. It has a restorative lens on it to recognize where we've been out of relationship. And there's historical harms that have been done and recognizing that my healing and the healing of those peoples and lands are inextricably linked and bound up with one another. But if I'm coming from the energy of guilt or shame or blame, I'm just flooding that into the river flowing in that way again. So if you go on to the click around on the website where we have the book, you'll see this five element mandala that we came up with as again, our subjective view of looking at some transition pathways. And Elnor was speaking about the earth element, the post-capitalist infrastructure that is in this material manifestation. And there's other things of how we think about liberation of capital and hospicing the very notion. It's the ever ongoing practice of what does it mean to be in right relationship? What does it mean to be in solidarity with, as we speak of with indigenous peoples? That's not something as me as a white woman, I can just assert and that it holds true. This is a very deep undoing undoing of my occidental gaze. It's a de-schooling process that I have to be committed to, not just in the phenomenological world, but in a spiritual realm of where my ego wants to get it right, but to find how I'm opening myself up to other ways of being and knowing and seeing that then we can listen for what does need to be hospiced, what does need to create kind of a transition pathway for something else to come through. So a lot of the discussion hinges on this idea of ontology. And ontology is just, you know, philosophy's fancy word for saying how we perceive the world. Onto comes from the Latin to see. And so one of the core arguments is the manner by which we see and relate to the world and our place in the world is more important than 
solutionism. That the solutions themselves, quote unquote solutions, are determined by our ontological gaze. And so I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. So if our worldview, let's say the dominant culture worldview, to speak in generalizations, it's separatist and individualistic, it's materialist, it's rationalist, and it's anthropocentric. Okay, I'll just take those four aspects. So the human is at the center, the individual is at the center of humanity, that we are separate from nature and the rest of the world, and that we can rationally understand our place in the world and the separation of these constituent parts through our mind. Right? We reduce the entire world into the atom, and then the atom into the proton and the neutron and the electron, and now with quantum physics, maybe quarks and photons, what have you. But now we have the theory of everything, right? That's what science is reaching for, this grand unified theory. And that hubris and that arrogance literally determines the way we walk in the world. And so what we end up doing is we replicate the logic of this system by every act, no matter how well-intentioned it is. Even our empathy is mediated by this. How we see another being in, let's say, a different perspective. I come from a Sufi lineage, and so when I think of mystical traditions or many indigenous cultures hold similar views, when we go to a, let's say, what we call like, it's, it's more plural, it's ontological shifts, where it's interconnected, relational, animistic, quantum, queer, then instead of this table being this inanimate dead piece of wood that I am entitled to manipulate in whatever way I want, and it's here for my service and pleasure because I paid for it, I'm therefore entitled to it, right? I own it. To this is kin. This table is kin. It's a relational living being that has sacrificed its life to be in relationship to me in this particular way. And you know, even science in many ways is sort of moving towards these understandings, right? In the in the field of consciousness, panpsychism is having this huge resurgence. A lot of what we're learning about quantum entanglement, which is one of the most validated scientific theories, shows this to be true. And these sort of ontological shifts create a totally different dynamic relational field with the world. And we're not saying that you can just turn the key and you can go from materialism to animism or rationalism to relationalism, but that it requires practice. In our culture, these are atrophied psychic skills. These are atrophied social, cultural, spiritual skills, but that they can be strengthened through the intention and the will and the practice of other ways of knowing and being. Not to denounce rationalism or say it's just rationalism placed in the pantheon of other ways of knowing and being it's one way to sense the world it's not the pinnacle and and, and this has been really the root of the enlightenment project and scientism and the theology that has come around science and the way i see this is like science is the floor of understanding as opposed to the ceiling of understanding you know, it's one way that we can agree on shared consensus reality, where we can have shared language around ontology, but it's not the only way to see the world. And because we're in this enlightenment, rationalist, materialist worldview, it affects everything we do. And, and just to root it back to money, as soon as we are in this belief that people, rich people have earned their money and therefore deserve to make these decisions, we are replicating the culture of trauma and separation at every moment, even if we think we're doing something philanthropic for the love of humanity is what that means. But actually what we're doing is we're reifying the separation between you and I and the belief that because I won some perverse rigged lottery, that my deservedness then 
puts me in a position where I can help shift your life without ever addressing the structure of the thing that got us here in the first place. And, and we do it every day, right? We walk into a coffee shop and I feel entitled to treat the barista or whoever a certain way. And my rationalization is, well, they're getting paid for their work without any sense of, do they want to be doing this work? What is the system that put them here? What was the, the, you know, the trauma, the ancestral burden, the life circumstances that put this person in this context? We walk around as neoliberal zombies in the control and the extraction and the mediation of the world. And it literally blocks our mystical, spiritual capabilities of being in relationship with the animistic world and the more than human world. It's WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. It's our spring fundraiser. Help us raise $10,000 and get 10 new sustaining monthly donors and 50 new donors as we celebrate our 50th year on the air. Go to WGDR.org right now and make a generous donation. Again, that's WGDR.org and click on the donate button. And thank you so much. The entire paradigm of problem and solution is itself born out of the same logics that we're speaking to and so deeply conditioned. I worked for a very long time on schooling and the very way that we are taught to see component parts in relationship to one another and see problem solution. It's so deeply interwoven to any of the isms or the R keys that you want to speak to. And so what we're offering is that perhaps it's for us to go and quiet and be in contemplation with the river, with the more than human realm and listen from that place. Because if we continue to do the problem solution logic, it's only what I can see through my ontology is even possibilities. And so in this way, Elnor and I also have been in an ongoing, like it's not for us to point exactly to who are the peoples or the projects or the things to, as much as we want to uplift all the great work in the world, because it falls back into that problem and solution logic that somehow we know, or we're the arbiters or the curators of what the right way to go about this is. And so we're really trying to be in the ongoing praxis of what it is to decondition ourselves and to listen cultivate peripheral vision and other ways of being and knowing and get out of the entrapment. And what Elnor was gesturing to is within rationality is we're kind of invoking trans-rational, like recognizing there are many approaches to understanding and seeing. Maybe the place to begin is that if we set up, you know, old versus new, we're back into binary logics. We're back into good versus bad. Old is bad, new is good. And there's just so many things that we can all recognize. And it's an ongoing process to recognize the thought forms and the biases that we're all holding in our gaze, in our bodies, in our etheric fields, and in the worlds around us. So we invoke this kind of new ancient emerging, recognizing that we are in a co-creative dynamic process. And in a way, it's us within a Western tradition 
and the consequences of that that have separated ourselves out or perceived our separation out with the continuum of life and death. There's many indigenous cosmologies and indigenous sciences that recognize this continuum of life. And so we look at how do we find right relationship with life force, not again as a solution, but to dance with the cosmos, to dance with what is emerging, what is co-creative, and also not to ignore what the ancient wisdoms are. And in a way, Elnor speaks a lot about the ancestral lineage. And I feel this call also to listening to something else that's coming through the cracks and the fissures that we haven't yet recognized. And also the, the way that we're kind of invoking some of the webs of relationships and entanglements with what we're calling the spiral logic. We've been talking about the binaries versus old versus new. And, you know, even the romanticization of other ways of knowing and being, it's not to say that there is a way, right? That, that there'll even be some perfect synthesis of bringing back the best of indigenous wisdom with the, you know, Western technique or what have you. It's more acknowledging the messiness of the entanglement that we are in. That neoliberalism and late stage capitalism and capitalist modernity, these are not things outside of us. These are, consciousness producing entities that have co-constituted who we are as a species as individual beings and they're iterative and they're discursive but they're also self-reflexive and interdependent that we have the ability through deeper refinement and more contextual sensitivity to find as lynn says the cracks in the fissures and the borderlands and these other places where we may not be able to stop the hegemony and totalitarian nature of growth-based capital. You know, I, I recently did my first trip outside of this land in a few years, and I went to New York, and a few days before I was leaving, the new iPhone 14 came out. And there was lineups down the street of Apple and the cell phone companies, and I, I was just walking by and I could see that people had the iPhone 13 in their hand, you know? And now the iPhone 14, is, and there's this lineup. And it, it just like hit me, you know, like a, a kind of like a ton of bricks. And I had to go sit in this coffee shop and just like recover from the monstrosity that is modernity and how our wills and our desires are entangled with that. And I thought that, okay, this culture is going to cut down the last tree, take the last bit of coltan from the Congo, the last bit of lithium from Bolivian mines. And how do we do what we need to do? and create what must be created, the post-capitalist futures all of us are responsible for, and take into account and integrate, you know, 5,000 years of consequence in our individual bodies, while creating with communities, while being an acceptance of the way the world is. You know, that's part of this new ancient emerging approach. This is part of the, the, the spiral logic that all of these things are happening simultaneously, that by engaging in this process, we're not trying to find some answer or way out or sense of certainty but you know as donna haraway would say like to stay with the trouble but not for the sake of staying with the trouble but for the sake of let's say it this way that the desire to shift our ontology and our way of being in relation to the world could lead to the world being in different ontological relationship to us that as karen barad would say that the universe will meet us halfway by us actively saying that we want to step outside of the old story and be initiated into other stories and other ways of knowing and being, that the living animate world and universe will meet us there. 
will take our will and our intentionality and our agency in consideration as new ancient emerging pathways open to us. But that possibility also exists, that Gaia herself has her own will and her own entelechy. And I try not to say in a place of hope or hopelessness, but if there was any residual of optimism, let's say, it, it would be in her will, in that something else will be created in relationship, in dynamic relationship to how we choose to approach. We have this, as I refer to, this five-element mandala, and the earth element is at the bottom. And the top of that is the element of air. And this is in response to what we're speaking of, of what is this new ancient emerging. And as we were speaking with many people, we realized there was just a sincere dearth of the collective imaginary of anything else being possible in a way. Of course, there's so much work that's going on that is in what we would call the transition pathways. And I, I want to like honor that work. And part of it is what Eleanor also spoke to is that there are many who have been already living these values that we're speaking of within the post-capitalism. But in the collective, in the the collective consciousness, we are more, I mean, as the cliche goes, we are more connected and can imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that says something so deeply about the thwarting of the co-creative possibilities within ourselves. If I would even say the thwarting of life force itself, which is where it leads us into not reifying trauma to get us more adjusted within the world that we live in, but to open up to what is the gift, what is the wisdom of that, and in, in coming back into right relationship with life force itself. And Elnor and I end the book in kind of what came to us as we really sat with this spiral logic and as we sat with what he was speaking of, that Gaia herself may meet us halfway. And we were looking at this within that, what if we see this moment as a deep moment of surrender, a deep moment of letting go of control innerly in our worlds around us? What if we see this moment where we are as a true threshold, an initiatory moment for not just ourselves as separate individuals, but for our webs of relationships and the, in the human and the more than human realm. And in that way, what is it for us to walk each other into the unknown? I feel to just honor Kairos and Kronos time and know where we are in Kronos time. And we finished the book actually with the myth of Inanna. And the myth of Inanna was one that comes from the Sumerian mythology, the pantheon. And at the time of the height of civilization, this goddess of earth and heaven went into the descent. And we finish with that myth because we're recognizing that we are in the age of consequences, that we are in the great descent, which we also know through spiritual traditions are also that place where awakenings can happen. And will we make it true to some sort of true or what is that? We don't know. And we we sit with that, the deep mystery of that, of what are the karmic conditions of being in this age of consequence for the ancient, for the future, for the beings that are here. And just really look forward to continuing to walk with, to walk each other home. You know, we're also learning as we're thinking and feeling and trying to embodying non-dualistic thought and, you know, embodied cognition and it's practice. You know, as, as we said, we're, we're just in the practice of how do we deconstruct what it is to be born into a culture of such deep psychosis and all that's required to decondition and disentrain our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And it requires community. 
it's really the only way by which we can we can develop these practices. That was Alner Lada and Lynn Murphy, and their new book they were talking about is Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in the Time of Collapse. You can find out more about their work at transitionresourcecircle.org. That's transitionresourcecircle.org.
So I didn't always make my living from music. For about the five years after graduating from an upstanding liberal arts university, I was a self-employed living statue called the Eight Foot Bride, and I love telling people I did this for a job because everybody always wants to know who are these freaks in real life. Hello. I painted myself white one day, stood on a box, put a hat or a can at my feet, and when someone came by and dropped in money, I handed them a flower and some intense eye contact. And if they didn't take the flower, I threw in a gesture of sadness and longing as they walked away. So I had the most profound encounters with people, especially lonely people who looked like they hadn't talked to anyone in weeks, and. We would get this beautiful moment of prolonged eye contact being allowed in a city street, and we would sort of fall in love a little bit. And my eyes would say, "Thank you, I see you," and their eyes would say, "Nobody ever sees me. Thank you." And I would get harassed sometimes. People would yell at me from their passing cars, "Get a job!" And I'd be like, "This is my job." But it hurt because it made me fear that I was somehow doing something shameful. I had no idea how perfect a real education I was getting for the music business on this box. And meanwhile, I was touring locally and playing in nightclubs with my band, the Dresden Dolls. As we started touring, I really didn't want to lose this sense of direct. Connection with people because I loved it. So after all of our shows, we would sign autographs and hug fans and hang out and talk to people. And we made an art out of asking people to help us and join us. And I would track down local musicians and artists, and they would set up outside of our shows, and they would pass the hat, and then they would come in and join us on stage. So we had this rotating smorgasbord of weird, random circus guests. And then Twitter came along and made things even more magic because I could ask instantly for anything anywhere. So I would need a piano to practice on, and an hour later I would be at a fan's house. People would bring home-cooked food to us all over the world backstage and feed us and eat with us. I once tweeted, "Where in Melbourne can I buy a neti pot?" And a nurse from a hospital drove one right at that moment to the cafe I was in, and I bought her a smoothie, and we sat there talking about nursing and death. And I love this kind of random closeness, which is lucky because I do a lot of couch surfing in mansions where everyone on my crew gets their own room, but there's no wireless, and in punk squats, everyone on the floor in one room with no toilets, but with wireless, clearly making it the better option. <laughs> My crew once pulled our van up to a really poor Miami neighborhood, and we found out that our couchsurfing host for the night was an 18-year-old girl still living at home, and her family were all undocumented immigrants from Honduras. And that night, her whole family took the couches, and she slept together with her mom so that we could take their beds. And I lay there thinking, these people have so little. Is this fair? And in the morning, her mom taught us how to try to make tortillas and wanted to give me a Bible. And she took me aside and she said to me in her broken English, "Your music has helped my daughter so much. Thank you for staying here. We're all so grateful." And I thought, this is fair. 
A couple months later, I was in Manhattan, and I tweeted for a crash pad. And at midnight, I'm ringing a doorbell on the Lower East Side, and it occurs to me I've never actually done this alone. I've always been with my band or my crew. Is this what stupid people do? <laughs> Is this how stupid people die? And before I can change my mind, the door busts open. She's an artist. He's a financial blogger for Reuters, and they're pouring me a glass of red wine and offering me a bath. And I have had thousands of nights like that. So I couch surf a lot. I also crowd surf a lot. I maintain couch surfing and crowd surfing are basically the same thing. You're falling into the audience, and you're trusting each other. I once asked. An opening band of mine, if they wanted to go out into the crowd and pass the hat to get themselves some extra money, something that I did a lot. And as usual, the band was psyched, but there was this one guy in the band who told me he just couldn't bring himself to go out there. It felt too much like begging to stand there with the hat. And I recognized his fear. And meanwhile, my band is becoming bigger and bigger. We sign with a major label. And our music is a cross between punk and cabaret. It's not for everybody, but <laughs> well, maybe it's for you. <laughs> We sign, and there's all this hype leading up to our next record. It comes out, and it sells about 25,000 copies in the first few weeks. And the label considers this a failure. And I was like, 25,000 isn't that a lot? They're like, no,、nope, the sales are going down. It's a failure, and they walk off. Right at the same time, I'm signing and hugging after a gig, and a guy comes up to me and hands me a ten-dollar bill, and he says, "I'm sorry, I burned your CD from a friend." <laughs> I, but I, I read your blog. I know you hate your label. I just want you to have this money. And this starts happening all the time. I become the hat. After my own gigs, but I have to physically stand there and take the help from people. And unlike the guy in the opening band, I've actually had a lot of practice standing there. And this is the moment I decide I'm just going to give away my music for free online whenever possible. And I'm going to encourage torrenting, downloading, sharing. But I'm going to ask for help because I saw it work on the street. So I fought my way off my label, and for my next projects with my new band, the Grand Theft Orchestra, I turned to crowdfunding, and I fell into those thousands of connections that I'd made, and I asked my crowd to catch me. And the goal was $100,000. My fans backed me at nearly 1.2 million, which was the biggest music crowdfunding project to date. And you can see, it's about 25,000 people. And the media asked Amanda, "The music business is tanking, and you encourage piracy. How do you make all these people pay for music?" And the real answer is, I didn't make them; I asked them. And through the very act of asking people, I'd connected with them. And when you connect with them, people want to help you. It's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of artists; they don't want to ask for things, but it's not easy. It's not easy to ask, and a lot of artists have a problem with this. Asking makes you vulnerable, and for most of human history, musicians, artists, they've been part of the community, connectors and openers, not untouchable stars. Celebrity is about a lot of people loving you from a distance, but the internet and the content that we're freely able to share on it are taking us back. It's about a few people. 
loving you up close, and about those people being enough. So a lot of people are confused by the idea of no hard sticker price. They see it as an unpredictable risk. But the things I've done—the Kickstarter, the street, the doorbell—I don't see these things as risk. I see them as trust. Now, the online tools to make the exchange as easy and as instinctive as the street—they're getting there. But the perfect tools aren't going to help us if we can't face each other and give. And receive fearlessly, but more important, to ask without shame. My music career has been spent trying to encounter people on the internet the way I could on the box. So blogging and tweeting not just about my tour dates and my new video, but about our work and our art and our fears and our hangovers, our mistakes, and we see each other. And I think when we really See each other. We want to help each other. I think people have been obsessed with the wrong question, which is how do we make people pay for music? What if we started asking, how do we let people pay for music? Thank you. <laughs>
With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you. Faster and faster, with nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving dark though it is. (laughs) 